Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome back again to the Explaining History podcast. I am joined today by James Walvin, who is the Professor Emeritus of History at York University. And we are talking today about um, the history of the song Amazing Grace, which is a slight departure in some ways for the Explaining History podcast. I mean, we'll be talking about the the history of all sorts of kind of um, events and historical processes. But it's it's rare. I think we've only done it once or twice in the past where we've talked about um, that, like the, the kind of the cultural history of a song. I think previously we did one about "Give Peace a Chance" a long, long ago. Anyway, so um, I'm delighted to, um, to to welcome James to to the podcast. And the place to begin really is by examining the actual um, composer of the song um, and. That's our, our starting point. So, so firstly, James, welcome. Um, and I, I thought perhaps we should dive into, you know, who who wrote Amazing Grace and the kind of the, the context of that and, and the, the historical moment that the, the song was created in. Uh, Amazing Grace uh, has this extraordinary history of going from an English hymn of the late 18th century through to this global anthem. It was written by the Reverend John Newton uh, in the 1770s. Uh, first song, uh, January the 1st, 1773. But the curious thing about John Newton is that although by then he was an Anglican vicar, he had been a mariner. Mm-hmm. He'd been a, a mariner in the Mediterranean, but more especially in the Atlantic. And he'd been the captain of a slave ship. And he had shipped Africans from Africa, enslaved, to the Americas. Mm-hmm. And yet, here is a man mired in the brutality and the horrors, really, of Atlantic slavery, 
who is best known for writing the words to one of the, the world's most famous hymns. And with um, with his sort of um, in, involvement as a mariner, to what extent was he, you know, one of, I hate to use the term, kind of one of, one of the almost the entrepreneurs of the slave trade? Um, he's, he's not simply just, you know, the, 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 um, the person that moves things back and forth. Was he, he? He's more kind of financially involved in the business of slavery, isn't he? Well, he's he, he's a first mate of a slave ship, then a captain, and he right. has an, he has a vested interest in it. I mean, he doesn't invest his own money in it, but he's a great beneficiary upon it. But at the point there is, of course, that there were tens of thousands of people like John Newton in the 18th century, not just right. Brits, uh, but Europeans and and Americans. Who, uh, for whom the slave trade was a booming business. Mm -hmm. The curious object, uh, the, the curious thing about Newton is that a man with such a record turns his face against slavery. Not only turns his face against it, but becomes one of the, the major advocates of abolition by the, the last generation in his life. And his lasting memory is, of course, um, amazing grace. And how do we account for that? That this kind of um, this, this change in him, what, what seems to have led to that? John Newton had been brought up by a God-fearing mother, and he was a very um, learned boy and a much-read man, really steeped in in literature, but steeped also in um, scriptures. And there's this curious mix. He, he emerges as a, a full-grown man, well-versed in the Bible. Well versed in hymnals, his mother took him to uh, nonconformist uh, churches in, in the city of London when he was young, and mm -hmm. he was really committed to singing, which Baptists and Methodists did, but which the Anglican Church didn't do. And he turns against the institution that he made money from and that, he, that was his livelihood. He turns against it as slowly and doesn't really come out against it uh, publicly until what the seventeen eighties. When he actually uh, um, writes pamphlets against it, and is actually he gives evidence before the Privy Council against the slave trade. But before mm. then, what what converts him, what makes him see see the errors of his ways, is an extraordinary storm in the Atlantic mm -hmm. uh, when he was a sailor, and the ship was wrecked, almost lost. They limp into Ireland and then in, back to Liverpool. And he regards this as salvation. He, he, he regards this as the Lord giving him grace. And it fits in with discussions he had already with other people about what is grace? How do you, how do you secure grace? How do you secure a guaranteed place through the pearly gates? And he's determined, uh, after he falls ill and is no longer able to go to sea, working in Liverpool, He's determined to become a cleric, but that's a very difficult thing to do because he's not, he's just, he has no external education, he hasn't been to Oxford or Cambridge, but he's deeply learned. And after five efforts, he's finally uh, uh, enrolled into the Church of England. He's finally given a clerical position. Mm -hmm. And that is in the parish church in only in Buckinghamshire. Yeah. And in only in Buckinghamshire, where he makes friends with Cooper, uh, the great poet. They write hymns together. Newton is a great believer that hymns are a good way of worshipping. He's certainly influenced by the Methodists in this. Yeah. And he, he tries to write hymns that will support a particular 
uh, extract from the Bible, a particular sermon he's given. An amazing grace is written for one of those. It's simply to back up what he preached that particular day. But it's designed for the poor people of Olney, his poor parishioners. He becomes such a great uh, preacher that they have to extend the, uh, the meeting rooms in Olney to make room for large crowds. And they listen to this great preacher, once a slave trader, and in 1773, they hear Amazing Grace, and they sing Amazing Grace. But they don't sing it to the tune that we're familiar with today. That doesn't come until really much later. Mm -hmm. And was he, in his sort of second life, um, uh, as a member of the clergy, was he fairly kind of explicit about his past as a, 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 um, a slave mariner? Or did he sort of tend to kind of avoid that? Newton actually covers up some of his uh, past uh, deeds. He recognises the sinfulness and the wickedness of his ways, but he doesn't like to spell that out. Uh, yeah. We know, for instance, from his journals, from his diaries, that he did what um, any other slave captain would do. He brutalises Africans. For instance, he puts them in the thumb schools if he thinks that there is a, a potential revolt uh, brewing on board ship. Mm. Remember, the Africans are a huge, they're hugely outnumbered the crew, and they are a great threat to every slave ship. You have to keep them shackled, you have to keep an eye on them, grant them a, a, a moment's uh, freedom, and they're at your throat. And he actually puts uh, Africans in a thumbscrew to get them to confess to organizing a, a rebellion, which is commonplace on slave ships. That's the kind of past that he doesn't really want to spell out. As yeah. much as he denounces it, and indeed he does talk in general terms about people putting the Africans in the thumbscrew, but he never says, I did it. He never says, my great my great sin, my great um, wickedness has been to brutalise Africans. He doesn't say that. Mm. He just said, it's not, it's not uncommon for it to happen. Mm. Yeah. And no no doubt there was immense shame that he carried with him throughout, throughout much of the rest of his life. Um, yeah. Where does he fit in? Uh, I mean, I, I know there was a kind of like a fictionalised account of this. There was a film made, uh, in fact, called Amazing Grace, probably about 20 years ago now, um, uh, with, with um, kind of aspects of this story in it. In the, in the kind of like the pantheon of um, English abolitionists, is he a significant figure or is it his kind of role not to be sort of overplayed, really? I think you can overstress it, but I mean, what we mustn't do is to forget the role he played. And we don't have many men who actually are uh, recognised by the highest politicians and statesmen in the land, the significant figures in speaking up against the slave trade, who mm. had been uh, slave traders. I mean, his, his key role, it's almost a unique role in a way, that he, has, he knew the story from the inside. He had been a slave captain. He'd been mm. he bought and sold actions. He knew precisely what he was talking about. And that makes him a kind of invaluable witness. When the Privy yeah. Council, when from 1787, the Privy Council begins to take evidence about the slave trade in the campaign that Wilberforce was orchestrating, um, they turn to him because his voice has a kind of authority which no one else has. I mean, everyone could, anyone could stand up and denounce it on moral or theological grounds. But who else had actually being at the grim end of it, so buying them, selling them, beating them, and holding them in awe as they crossed the Atlantic. Well, John Newton had. So, in a way, he is a kind of unique voice 
in a, in, a, in a world where there are very very few leads of, of that kind. Right, and his um, I mean, during his lifetime, did the song of Amazing Grace kind of spread beyond his his own immediate kind of uh, congregation? Was it something that was uh, kind of popularised in his lifetime, or did it, or, or not so much? Um, I think he went to his grave in 1807, uh, unaware of um, the potential of this hymn. It certainly hadn't spread in England, and indeed it, it stayed uh, in the background in England for a long time. The place mm. where it actually does take root and become something quite different is the, the New Republic of the United States. It's uh, published in the United States, first of all, I think, in 1789, if I remember rightly. Mm -hmm. And thereafter, it spreads. Uh, and it spreads because the United States, the early United States, becomes a very religious place and an extraordinary mm -hmm. proliferation of Christian churches and Christian preachers, of traveling preachers, all of whom, like English Methodists before them and the Moravians, use a song, use music to promote their interests. And one right. of the things they use. Uh, is the hymn that um, John Newton wrote. That's one of many. Uh, it's not just the, it's not the only one, but Amazing Grace finds a place in the kind of lexicon of uh, American church music very yeah. early on in the early 19th century. And is it is it understood at the time? I mean, uh, is, is any of the kind of the, the kind of the uh, history of the song un understood at the time? Because obviously it's being, if it's in America, um it's being popularized in a, a totally different context of slavery and and arguments for abolition um yes. was it used for you know um what, what was it particularly an abolitionist hymn um initially in the first part of the 19th century it, it isn't really amazing grace takes root first of all as a kind of folk song uh in the backwards of the united states uh, English, Welsh, Scottish and Irish immigrants sing Amazing Grace as part of their very vibrant folk culture and they sing mm. it to various tunes. But the key element in all this is the way it uh, takes root in African-American communities. It takes right. root amongst the slaves. And if you read the words, you can see why. The words that, uh, of Amazing Grace have an extraordinary resonance for African-Americans, particularly for enslaved people. You look at the, the third verse. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace has brought us safe as far, and grace will lead us home. You know, yeah. There's a verse that speaks directly to the bitter loss of the um, millions of African Americans who were enslaved before 1860. Yeah. And so that's really interesting, isn't it, about how, um, the, uh, you know, a a a text, if you will, finds um, a kind of a particular meaning at a particular moment with a, a particular group of people, um, and you know you 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 can you can go off into a kind of a kind of cultural studies sort of sort of journey there, but um, it, 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 there there are frequent examples of the uh, of um, texts resonating, songs resonating with with people in in all sorts of of perhaps unexpected ways. Yes. So, if, if, think, sorry. Yeah. No, you carry on. Sorry, James. If you think that American uh, Amazing Grace takes root amongst the enslaved, then thrives amongst the freed African American communities, especially when they move out of the South to the big cities of the North and the Midwest, 
it's in those churches that mm -hmm. Amazing Grace becomes part of the African-American gospel. And the great gospel singers of the late 19th, early 20th century, right down to the great gospel singers that we're all familiar with, mm -hmm. and Mahalia Jackson, um, they all sing Amazing Grace. And it's a direct route back to slave days, and a direct route back to that further verse that uh, John Newton wrote in a way, in all innocence of slavery, despite being a slave captain of him. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, right. And so, yeah, to, to, to talk about about that, you know, you this, this, this the, the song um, takes us on this, this journey from the, the late 18th century, obviously, through all the way through to um, the America's 19th century, which is kind of truncated in the middle by a civil war over slavery. And then the, there, there is this, this period, this kind of reconstruction period, and, and um, which you know, falters, and, uh, and then there's, there's a kind of a, a recrudescence of um, white supremacism in, in the last part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century. And so um, when, uh, at a certain point, the kind of amazing grace becomes it becomes like a, a a gospel song and i'm guessing probably sung predominantly by black gospel choirs as opposed to white people well it actually it, there are parallels there are parallel lines of this story um it becomes a, a a striking song a striking hymn in black churches and particularly part of african-american gospel but it's also sung by uh huge numbers of very influential white gospel singers and in, right. in the white churches um and it, of course and it continues as well as a popular song uh, rather than a hymn amongst folk singers and what happens in the 20th century is that these two strands emerge into something quite different with the commercialization 
of the recorded and broadcast music um, to become the extraordinary popular hymn, first of all in the United States and then globally. But in the mm. case of African-American life, the hymn becomes uh, one of those hymns that actually accompanies African-American politics and African-American protests. When, yes. when African-Americans begin to campaign for civil rights, well, they always campaign for them, but when that campaign reaches a new level in the years after the Second World War, mm. when people march, they sing, amongst other things, they, they sing Amazing Grace. Um, right. not only, they, don't sing, they don't only sing uh, we, will, we Shall Overcome, uh, they sing Amazing Grace. Um, and they sing it because it is something that they've sung since time out of mind. Yes, yes. And so it, it comes to, um, as you say, after the Second World War, it comes to be a sort of uh, sim symbolic of that that new phase of of, of struggle, um, and it's popularised by um, a, a number of, uh, of, of quite famous people during the the civil rights struggle. I think Aretha Franklin sang it. I think so. Um, I could be sang, I, I could be corrected there, um, and there are. I mean, there there, it, there are a number of key um key songs from the, the sort of the, the um the 1930s onwards one that i've talked um about previously on, on on here is strange fruit by by billy holiday um but it, um amazing grace seems to have captured captured that that historical moment um in, in, in a very powerful way yes um was it the kind of thing that was um, you, you, was was sung actually on marches? Things like the um, the uh, the the the, um, uh, the nineteen sixty five um, uh, Voting Rights Act march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and things like that, or or is it was it normally would it normally be sung before uh, you know, at, at well, some sort of event beforehand? It's sung throughout the, the civil rights campaign, really, from the 60s onwards. Um, mm. And we'll, we'll give you just one example. I mean, when Martin Luther King led the great bus march, the bus boycott march uh, in and from Montgomery, um, uh, at night, after a very exhausting day, when uh, not only exhausting day on the road, but also very dangerous, you know, they were threatened and were killed and violated. Um, when he was trying to rest at night, uh, Mahalia Jackson would ring him up and sing Amazing Grace to him down the telephone line to help him relax. Um, right. That's a real interesting uh, insight into the uh, the importance of that hymn between those two people and at that particular historical moment. And we know uh, that when people were imprisoned on those marches, uh, they sang Amazing Grace in prison. And there's this haunting music that accompanies, in a way, it's the kind of uh, the background music to the civil rights campaign. It's not just uh, We Shall Overcome, which becomes the most strident one and the one that's best remembered. But yeah. Amazing wow. Grace is something that actually floats through the whole campaign, right through to uh, the later years when the, the campaigns against um, the Vietnam War worked. Mm -hmm. And um, does it remain a kind of rooted in... Uh -huh. Um, kind of a Christian tradition, or does it become sort of more more secular in some ways? Um, Interesting question. 
interesting question whether it remains uh, religious or secular, because uh, one of the most important folk singers of uh, the 20th century, Pete Seeger, was a, a, an open communist, and he didn't like the idea of singing Amazing Grace because he was, he was not a believer, but I thought it was too Christian, too religious. Right? But when he looked at the words, the words have a humane uh, impact, a sense. I mean, that third verse, for instance, this speaks to the human condition, human aspirations, human suffering. And folk singers pick it up as a, as a secular song. Yeah. And so what you have really is a, a, a hymn that actually appeals to both sides of the religious divide, those that don't believe at all, mm-hmm. but for whom it actually says something about mankind, and those for whom it has kind of spiritual significance. Yeah. Um, and then the other factor that comes in is that the music itself is changed. It, it, well, the music itself becomes important because the music from 1971 uh, comes to be played by pipers, by Scottish pipers, with no yeah. words attached to it at all. Now, you can't listen to a Scottish bagpiper playing it and say, well, uh, it's the religious side of the song because there are no words to it. It's yeah. just the music. So what there are the different strands. There's the secular strand, the religious strand, and then the simple musical seduction of the yeah. And you know, I suppose if, if you were to look at kind of twentieth century America and pick out a, a handful of, of of songs, such as you know, uh, uh, "This Land Is Your Land," um, um, the uh, "Amazing Grace," and you know, a, a couple of other kind of key kind of anthems of, of sort of of sort of protest they like you say they're, they're, they're slightly transcendent aren't they? they they're not about you know sectarianism or um anything else they're, they're about some something more fundamentally human than that yeah um and i i, I note um that the, it was um uh, i'm casting my mind back now because it's actually quite a long time ago but the the obama inauguration uh, which is one of those things you, you when you actually remember, you think, oh, that was only a few years ago, and it's not. It's actually a long, long time ago. Um, the 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 Obama inauguration had Amazing Grace sung at it, didn't it? Well, the most actually the, the most important link between Obama and Amazing Grace was when he sang it in two thousand and fifteen. He sang it at the funeral of an assassinated. Minister, uh, the Reverend Pinckney, is a state senator in South Carolina, and who'd been murdered along with eight of his parishioners at a Bible reading class. Oh yes, I see. Part of the league. And uh, Obama went down to do the funeral eulogy and did so in front of a crowd of five thousand in the College of Charleston uh, basketball stadium, with thousands more outside in the summer sweltering heat. And as he's giving the oration. It's, but you can see this on YouTube to this day. It's a, a spellbinding moment. Obama pauses and suddenly starts to sing Amazing Grace. Now, with all the best will in the world, you can't say that President Obama's got a good singing voice. Yeah. But it is an electrifying political moment. The ministers, the clerics around him, struggle to stand up and join him. And the musicians in the room do the same. But what's interesting is that 5,000 people stand up as their president sings and without the words in front of them five thousand people begin to join and sing that they know it were perfect without it being in the order of service 
Now, yeah. there's a sign of the significance of the hymn. And Obama and, singing Amazing Grace is one of those kind of key moments really in the story of this extraordinary hymn. Yeah, and, and you know, o o Obama, a, a kind of a very, very seasoned, very talented political figure, understands the subtext of, of what he's singing. And, and the message of, of what he of, of what he is singing. What's um, interesting about that episode is that it looks for all the world as if it's spontaneous. In fact, he discussed it beforehand with his wife and with his close advisors, and they all thought it's a bad idea. Don't do it. Don't sing. You can't sing. Uh, and he thought if the congregation was with him, and how could they not be? African American, largely audience, and an African American president. If he, if they were with him, it would be okay for him to sing. And of course, it was a brilliant, audacious, uh, political coup. Yeah, yeah, and um, that that is the kind of thing that that sort of political moments are made of, aren't they? You know, a bit of chance, a bit of judgment, a bit of um, fingers crossed, and you know, and, and it doesn't doesn't fall flat on its face. Yes. Um, yes. But it's it's a kind of like an, a a a kind of a, an interesting sort of bookend to to the kind of, to to the story anyway. I'm sure Amazing Grace will continue to be used in in all sorts of different ways. But um, it's 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 fascinating to observe the songs the song's origins. Um, all the way through it to it being sung by the first African American president of the United States. Well, it, it's the in terms of the book I've written about Amazing Grace. That moment in 2015 is what persuaded me to write the book. Um, I'd been curious about John Newton and about the hymn uh, because I'd been a choir boy myself between 1948 and 1960, but we never sang Amazing Grace. This was an Anglican church in North Manchester. Mm -hmm. um, and it was only really working in living in the United States, on working on slavery and slave trade uh, for earlier books, that you you know you can't avoid an amazing grace when you're in the United States. Yeah. But then that moment in 2015, seeing Obama sing it and seeing the response, I thought, there's a story behind this. There's a story to be told, and that's yeah. what persuaded me to write the book. Well, while we're talking about the book, um, obviously, you know, I always make sure that there is a, a kind of an a, appropriate moment to 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 plug the book a little bit. Um, currently available in all good bookshops. It comes out in uh, late November. Um, right. Published November the twenty second. Okay. So we'll what we'll do is um, I'll see if I'll see if there's a pre a means of of pre ordering it to put a link on into the podcast. If not, I'll do a reminder around the time. And obviously, to as I say to, to the listeners every week, if you want to order the book, please, please support your local bookshop, your independent bookshop. Um, Amazon are too rich by half, but make sure your your, your independent bookshop is supported. Um, uh, if, if, if you can do, please. Um, Okay, well, we we shall we shall finish there, uh, James. But firstly, thank you so much for your time. I'm very very grateful to have been able to to talk about um, Amazing Grace there, um, and um, it would be a, a, a pleasure if you're available in the future to 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 talk about a related uh, 
matters if, if you'd like to return and, and have well, a chat. It was, I enjoyed doing that. And thank you very much for asking me. Okay. Um, super. Well, we'll finish there. And thanks so much. And uh, all you. the best. And good luck yes. with the book. With thank the thanks again. Take care. Bye bye. Yes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.